Boston accent. So. <laughs> um, Hosea chapter 3. I think we've heard enough here about how Hosea has married this unfaithful woman, Gomer, and how this is a picture and a type of uh, Israel and their unfaithfulness to the, to the Lord. Um, their unfaithfulness was with idols, and God sees this as a parallel. Idolatry and adultery are the same in, in God's eyes because they both deal with unfaithfulness. You've made a commitment, and now they've been unfaithful. And before we get to this chapter 3, which we'll be able to get the whole chapter here uh, tonight, <clears throat> this was written around 785 B.C., so close to 3,000 years ago. And uh, the things it's talking about, things you and I can see, Pretty crazy, so just I want to remind you how long ago this has been. I also kind of want you to notice and pay attention as we get towards the end, where, where might we be in this, you know, as we look at this time frame of things. Um, some have called this the greatest chapter in the Bible. So it's short, it's only five verses, but it covers like the overview of Israel. And I think that that's why some pick that, you know. I'm not saying that. I, I picked that, but, but many have. They're like, if you're going to boil it on down to something, this is a pretty great and important uh, chapter of the Bible. Uh, so verse 1 says, uh, Then said the Lord unto me, Hosea, Go yet, love a woman beloved of, her, uh, loved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So we're making a switch here, and he's taking the picture, and he's like, in case you've been dense, I'm going to switch it over and let you know that I'm talking about Israel. So he's, so he's using these two parallels right open and right in front of us. So it's not a mystery. It's not hidden. It's not been a mystery or hidden. And so Hosea and Gomer are pointing out specifically it's Israel and God. Or we could even take it and apply it to our lives. Is this us and God? Are we being unfaithful? It's a time to challenge and, and look at ourselves as well. She is an adulteress. Israel's an adulteress in that same way. They are un she was unfaithful to her husband. Israel is unfaithful to God. Israel went to see other gods. They had a covenant. We have covenant marriages now where we make a covenant with one another, where we uh, betroth one another to each other, and, and we go through the ceremony where you exchange names, you exchange rings, and all that goes all the way back to the covenant <coughs> ceremony in the Bible. And so it's the same kind of a thing. And yet when she breaks that, you know, she's... They say it's probably the most hurtful sin in the Bible would be unfaithfulness. You know, someone, you know, there's murders quick. You know, you get them over. This one's one that's like someone that you trusted and you had a covenant with to betray that. It's probably the one of the most hurtful ones they've, they've argued. And here you had this contract, you had this agreement, and, and they've broken it. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then they said, yes, and then they left. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe not so much. So I can't imagine says they, uh, they ran to other gods. Well, this guy, you know, and, and think who they ran to. I mean, they ran to these pagan gods. Who are they compared to the Lord? You know, he, he mocks and makes fun of them through most of the Bible because a lot of times the only thing they have to visibly, tangible, tangibly see is something that's carved. It's like it's got eyes, but it can't see. It's got ears, but it can't hear. It's got feet, but it can't walk. You know? You shave off part of it to make it, and you throw that part in the fire. Might as well throw the whole thing in there because you just—it's not doing anything, you know. And yet you choose this over me. So yeah, it's an insult. They—they they, they chose lesser, you know. It says they ran after wine there at the end. They went up. And they love flagons of wine. Ran to wine, so they're 
you say, hey, you're, you're drunk, and when you're drunk, and you're making bad choices. You made some bad decisions. And so uh, your decision-making's gone away. And so I think this also kind of sets up maybe some of the next verse. Wine costs money. You know, and so you have to purchase it. And so, and, and, and on behalf of Gomer, you know, it's something you had to buy. You know, maybe she runs a tab up or something. Uh, Israel was owned by the other gods. They made commitments and they made vows to them. Oh, we do this for you. You do this for us. You know, you know we own you. And that's part of it. You know, that's one of the tricks of, uh, we've all heard of the crossroads, you know, where it's like um, uh, the musicians that go down to the crossroad, you know, and sell their soul. You know, they're going to make it and I'll make you famous, you know, but there's always a twist to that, to the story. And, and to say that's just an idiom in music industry, I don't think that's right. Uh, I know Dave and I have watched channel after channel, and it's like too many famous people like, oh, I made a deal with the devil uh, for that just to be a coincidence. It's something I think that they do. And he's always got a catch in there. It always costs them something. So they've got a price. They've got a, they've got a tag on them. And so and these idols or this foreign god that they've run to are not just rocks and pieces of wood, like I was mentioning earlier. God brings that out several times. That's the representative that is there. But there is a spirit behind that rock or piece of wood. I know Elaine and I have debated this often, you know, and speak, thinking about the supernatural realm. Uh, there is some fallen angel. There is a demon. There is some kind of entity behind it. Because these people, you know, a lot of times we just think back like, oh, they're stupid. They carved a rock and they worship it. Well, probably because something happened that made them do that. They, you know, they were cutting themselves on Mount Carmel, you know, to bring down fire. Probably because they'd seen fire come down when they'd done that before. You know, they, they'd watched it happen. There's, there's supernatural things that go on. You know, people see it. And the more that we have turned from God, I think the more that is at, active and at play today. You know, because all these people are like, this is something I can see. This is something I can witness. This is something I can, I have power with. You know, the tarot tell me, or the Ouija board says, and then they move on from there. That's gateway stuff. You know, it leads into deeper, and yet it draws them. So there's something that's behind it. And I wanted to look at that just from the Bible real quick. Look at, hold your spot here and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. It is October. It usually seems like I didn't even think about it as I was writing this today, but we usually go to the Witch of Endor or something in there and, and cover that in the Bible, but uh, 1 Corinthians 10, we'll cover, we'll cover uh, spirit things behind this, the devils. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 19 says, what say I then, that, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idol is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, verse 20, they sacrifice to devils, and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So an idol is a symbol or a talisman or some link to a supernatural creature. It's not God. He makes it clear. It's not God. There's some supernatural thing that's tied to that, attached to it, or you know, related to it in some way. That's something that animism, you know, might animate or do something around it. Um, the word devil that's used here is... And I practice alternate and I say it. Dehamani. No, Dehamon. Close to that. I'm, I'm no Greek. <laughs> but uh, it's a, a spirit. And it says it's inferior to God, but superior to men. So there's a power that is there. There is something that would attract a human. And it's like, oh, it's not like us. It's inferior to God, for sure. But superior to men. And so there's a draw there to us. It's, uh, 
The fruit of the definition means a minister of the devil. So it's not the devil, but it's one of his agents. Now, that could be a demon. That's a non-corporeal spirit who's loose running around. It could be, you know, uh, a fallen, another fallen angel. Those are tangible. You can touch angels. You know, to say that's the spirit realm, they usually think they're all ghosts. Um, but it's not that. You know, they are physical. They're something that you can tangibly touch. You know, they grab people by the hand. They've made cakes. You know, they um, killed 185,000 one night. You know, so they're something that is physically there where a demon, you can't, you know, it passes through. It has to possess. But there's something that is attached to it, something that shows itself. Where do they come from? Let's go back to, uh, I'm not going to answer all that tonight, but Deuteronomy 32, at least how some of this is set, the stage that is set for all this. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 8. This passage is Moses arguing about the rock that is there. you know, And the rock is something you can chase all through Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. And in Deuteronomy 32, he says, When the Most High divided the nations, uh, their inheritance... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. That's how the King James reads, but that's not the best translation. And so, does anybody have like an ESV or a New American Standard to say different what you're saying? When the most high gave the nations their inheritance, and he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Sons of Israel is pretty similar. Does yours say the same as that? And so I know like um, sons of God, uh, I think uh, another, one, another one has it as, um, uh, I forget, oh, there it is, um, overseers or the uh, heavenly court. <clears throat> and so you have to look at this a little bit. People were trying to make sense of it at the time, and they didn't. And so it should be like the sons of God that, that is there, the heavenly court. Because to say the sons of Israel, the children of Israel... He hadn't chosen Abraham yet. And so how, how has he put them in charge of all the nations? And when have the Jews been in charge of all the nations? Never. You know, and so it's, it's, it's just how it's gotten. Um, it's, it's a spot that's been known that is there. Mine says children of Israel. Sons of Adam. Okay, descendants of Ben. And so it's either, uh, the one that makes the most sense is, is, is that a lot of scholars go with is the sons of God or the heavenly courts that we've talked about before. The ones, he puts them, the watchers, he puts them in charge of these nations. And so go back to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, he's confused the languages. It divides into 70 nations, you know, the table of nations. And then he puts heavenly watchers over them, you know, because God, uh, just like he put Adam over earth, he has the heavenly realm where he has his people there, does God need them? No. Does God like to have his children have responsibility? Yes, just like when your children are growing up, you give them responsibility. Is it sometimes better, easier for you to mow the grass or wash the car or clean the bedroom or make the bed? Probably, but you're teaching them responsibility. You'd love to see them have a good job. God the Father loves that. He wants us to serve him and, and honor him in that way. So he gives them a job. So he puts these angels in charge or these heavenly sons of God. And as they're over these regions, these nations... The power perverts them. Because you know? uh, we've seen whenever an angel's been seen by man, even godly men, they fall down at their feet. Remember, the good angels are like, no, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant like you. But what if you're a bad angel? Hey, I like that. Oh, you think I'm something special? I think you're right. You know, all of a sudden pride comes in. That's what happened with Lucifer, right? And so the power perverts them. 
And so now you have these different beings over these 70 different nations. You have some over Asia, and you have some over Egypt, and over the Nordics, and the European, and Russia, and South America. And that's where you get this, all these deities, you know, these little G-gods. And that's why they're a little bit different, but they're kind of all the same. They kind of have a, a common hierarchy that is there, you know, the, 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 the minions that are under them, and whether uh, they're genies, or, you know, but they have all these different things. They want, and they wanted worship. And they demanded worship, and they liked praise, and they wanted praise, and they were cruel gods, and you will worship me and me alone, and you'll offer that to me, and I like blood, and I like violence, so kill somebody and sacrifice it to me, and I want you to be afraid of me. And they loved all of that. And when you look at it, it's very demonic because these guys were opposite of God. They were there. Huh? Yeah, that's literally what they usually say. And so pride sets them up, and they fall, and the people turn them into gods. But apparently boundaries matter. It's like they had their regions. They have where it is. Uh, you get uh, to the story of like Elisha. Remember Naaman, you know, who comes with leprosy and he's, you know, first he's not going to dip in that dirty old river. We got a better river in, in Assyria. Uh, but he does and he gets healed, you know, of his leprosy. And he's like, you're, you're God strong. Remember he asked for something weird. Can I take a wheelbarrow of dirt back home with me? Because he's like, when, I, when my master goes and he worships his God, I have to kneel down on their dirt, on their earth, their territory. I don't want to do that. Can I take your dirt and put it down on my spot? That way I can be kneeling and praying to Yahweh instead. Because it's territorial. I want to bring part in, into here. You know, that, that, that makes it make sense. And so apparently they must fight for control. They must push borders, you know, boundaries and the thresholds and all these things become something different. And you start reading through the scripture that way. You notice it makes differences, these, these boundaries and thresholds and things that they're fighting for. And they're trying to outdo one another and try to grant more because they're evil, right? And so who's going to be the biggest? Who's going to be the baddest? Who's going to be the best? And so they are fighting for control. And so, and then throughout all that, God puts them over them and he, God calls out Abraham. And he says, you know, out of all of you and your I, I cry out, I, I'm going to take Abram, and out of him I'm going to make a nation. Him who's not a nation, I'll make a nation. So they become the odd ones. And so Abram, that goes down to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob, they change his name to Israel, and that's where we have it. And so if we continue reading this here in Deuteronomy 32, it kind of gives us a little background of the whole story. Um, for the Lord's portion is his people. God says, no, I'm, I'm going to choose only those nations. I'm going to choose my own people. He tried to reach the world. They perverted it with the Tower of Babel. And so he's like, no, I'm going to call, and I'm going to work through the Jews now. Uh, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. Uh, he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He gave him favoritism. Oh, the Jews, they're my favorite people. I'm going to work through them. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, and taketh them, beareth them on her wings. He's like, I'm going to shelter them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to protect them. Verse 12. So the Lord did, uh, did lead him. And there was no strange God with him. He made, the ride on, he made him ride on the high places of the earth, and that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flint of the rock, flinty rock. And so he's like, he sustained him in places where he shouldn't have been sustained. Verse 14, butter of kine and milk of sheep, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats, with the fat of the kidneys and wheat. And he did drink and the pure blood of the grape. And Jeshurun waxed fat, and kicked thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him lightly esteemed, and he lightly esteemed, sorry, uh, the rock of his salvation. So 
it's in the plenty, it's in the, when God has put all this upon them that all of a sudden they begin to not notice God as much because they're not dependent on him as much and they're trusting themselves as more or maybe this other God did that and they begin to esteem other things and despise the rock. Verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. Say so they started going whoring after strange gods. Now, I'm going to remind you, this is Moses before they even come into the land. Moses is telling them their history in advance. Here's how it's going to go. And so, uh, and in abominations provoked they him to anger. They did abominable things that God said not to do. Like, that sounds fun. Let's do that. You know, it's a lot like America. Verse 17, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not to new gods that came up, uh, that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. They left the gods. And he told them when they went into the land, don't go after other gods. You're going to be surrounded by all these others around you. Don't take them in. Don't take those wives in because they'll, they'll pervert you and say, oh, we need to watch it. But Solomon's the one who does it the worst. He brings in, he sets up an asteroid, you know, to remind him of his wife's hometown and, and puts up these shrines over here and over there. And it just brings the perversion into Israel. And it goes downhill from there. Verse 18, of the rock that begat thee out of thou art unmindful. So they forget him. It's forgetfulness. We covered that, I think, last week or two weeks ago, maybe. And hast forgotten God that formed thee. They begin to attribute to someone else. They begin to thank someone else. They forget to thank God at all. They trust in themselves. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of, the, of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very forward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's the Gentiles. We're getting ready to get into that in the book of Romans. As he goes, I have chosen someone who's not a people and I'll call out a people. He calls us the church. It's different. We don't replace them. He's using us to provoke them to jealousy to try to bring them back. Separation, God allows for separation even in a marriage to show you that you need one another. You know, it's hard when the two of you are apart. You need to reconcile and get together. He's doing that now, you know, through this example. Um, jump down to um, verse 33, because it's, it's long and I'm butchering it. Verse 33 says, uh, Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. And so he even brings how they've turned to wine, and we saw that in Hosea. Verse 36. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted. Oh, it's all run out on you now. It's like, what about that? This is like Gomer when all of a sudden, you know, she's not pretty anymore. No one wants her. And uh, the, 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 the foreign, foreign gods have said, oh, we've used up Israel. We don't want them anymore. Verse 38 which did eat of the fat of their sacrifices and drink the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. He's like, turn to them. Quit crying out to me. Verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, I, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. God is like, I'm the all-powerful one. They might be able to kill. They might be able to put fear in you. I can raise up again. I am the one who has the power of life. I can... Take a life and lay it down and bring it up again. Jesus Christ demonstrates that. Verse 43. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto uh, his land and to his people. So even again at the end, as Moses gets done with this song, he begins to tell them, but in the end, 
I will reconcile, we'll come back together. And that's where we are in Hosea. If we go back to Hosea. So they've turned to other gods, and behind those other idols and things are fallen creatures. And they're in a debt unto them. They're indebted to these other gods. Gomer went after other men. She must have ran up a barbell, couldn't pay for it. Men didn't want her anymore. She couldn't even pay for it that way. So one way you can become a slave in Israel, or in the Bible times especially, was as if you had incurred a debt. If you incurred a debt you couldn't pay, you then became a slave. Anybody feel that way? (laughs) It's like like you kind of get... I remember... uh, when I first took my job 40 years ago at the print shop, I'm like, I think I just have this long enough to pay off this truck. You know, then I'll see what else life might have in store for me. Yeah, I have in store for me a house, another truck, and then three kids. And <laughs> so it's like, I can't leave this job. It's, I, I have to have it. You know, it's got to keep you in there. You know, so it's kind of sometimes we feel indebted to the banks in the way that way versus um, paying the cash. It's part of that trap. So Gomer is in this kind of situation. She becomes a slave under those terms of. Uh, uh, of having bills that she could not pay, and so she could not pay those off. And so one way that you could be useful to the ones who you owed the debt to, if you couldn't earn that money back, is just sell you outright. Maybe you be a floor cleaner or something. You know, I don't know. So just she goes on the slave market. That's verse two. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, and for an homer of barley and a half a homer of barley. So here it's his own wife, but because she's in this bad situation where she's now has a debt against her that has to be alleviated so before he can even have her, he has to purchase her out. He has to redeem her, is actually the word. So Hosea buys her. It must have taken everything that he has. And it also kind of tells us a little bit about her worth because the, the price of a slave is 30 pieces of silver and she's only 15. You know, that's the whole mockery. Here, Jesus Christ, you know, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and they, Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. She's worth 15 pieces of silver. But I think it kind of tells us a little bit about what they say Gomer's worth and then how much and how, it's everything, Homer, everything Hosea has. Like, I want to combine them. Uh, so it's like they're at the auction back. 10, 10, who give me 10 pieces of silver? 11, and 12, 15, 16. And it stalls at 15, uh, but he's kind of tied with another guy. He says, I'll give you 15. And Hosea's like, oh, I'll give you 15. And he's like pulling his pockets out. And he goes, I don't have any more than 15. How about a homer of barley? And he's like, uh, other guy, I'll give you a homer of barley. How about a half a homer of barley too? And, and Hosea's like, I got nothing else. And so he kind of gave him everything. He gave him the grain and whatever he else. So sold to him for 15 and a homer and a half of barley. The movie that I told you about that yeah. time, uh, this scene is a slave market. Mm-hmm. And they've got her up. Yeah. And nobody is bidding on her. One person bids, you know, like a couple of shekels. Like <laughs> and for no reason, Homer stands up and says, You did it too. Jose. <laughs> I mean, Jose stands up and says, 15 silver and a barley and a half shekel. Uh, yeah. For no reason. And, yeah. and they just look at him like, Okay, you won. Yeah. No question. You're nuts. Yeah. He just, gave everything that he had. Yeah. Well, that should make, paint a picture for you. So who, who has to be redeemed from the slave block to be purchased out to be a people, someone that he loves, with everything that he has? And that's why I love this chapter. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for him paying that price for her, I've got no chance. Nope. I have no hope. Cause, yeah, this is a picture of Christ and us. You know, we've been redeemed. We were worthless. We were slaves to sin. 
and he purchases out of people. And in that purchase, when he dies for the sins of the world, that includes the sins of Israel. So they are purchased, they are bought. They're just stubborn and rebellious. You know, they just don't yield to it. So it's a beautiful picture, the whole story of Hosea. It's, you should be able to look and see your life in this as it's all mapped out. Christ doing everything he can to win us, giving his all to have it. Verse 3 says, and, he said, and I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be uh, for another man. So will I also be for thee. So there's kind of some terms here. There's some, if it's a little chastity clause in here, which you think would have been implied before. And, I, and I'm wondering if it's not like he sets her aside a little bit. This is my <laughs> speculation for maybe for punishment, purification. Maybe a little bit like, I'm going to set you aside from men for a while. Um, before everything gets reunited as it should. Um, it'd be hard not to have a little cold shoulder for a while. It's like, oh, you went a whoring after men? You know, and I had to give everything I had to purchase you out? You know, so I think this applies to Israel, too. <clears throat> and we'll see that more here in verse 4. Verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. How is this applied to Israel? Uh, this is why I was saying earlier, this was written almost 3,000 years ago, and we've watched this map out before our eyes. Since 70 AD, when Israel uh, was dispersed from their land, when they were kicked out, how many kings have they had? Zero. How many princes? You know, the hope of a future king? Zero. How many sacrifices did they have to hold at the temple that got torn over stone for stone? The, the image here actually represents a pillar. We'll get into that just a little bit. Um, an altar, nothing. An ephod, a teraphim. These are all a little bit different. They, they don't have this. And so basically it's saying that Israel has nothing. It's, it's basically you're going to be deprived of all civil and religious privileges. You don't get to have that for a while. I gave you everything. I would be your king. I would do that. You, didn't want, you weren't happy with me being a king. You wanted an earthly king. I gave you an earthly king. And then you perverted all that. And then you went after other gods. And God like, you're going to sit on the side for a minute. I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. I'm going to pour out my blessing on these Gentiles for a while. Then we'll come back together. So no king. Just like Gomer was without a husband. There's no one there to protect her, to pay her bills, to do all that. No king for you. Uh, Israel didn't have that. Uh, no prince. That's no future. No future leaders. No one waiting in the wings. One, because uh, Jesus was the Prince of Peace. And he was the King of Kings, and they rejected him. You know, so there's no one after him. That's where it comes all together. They rejected and crucified the King. You didn't want him? So God's like, the world doesn't want you. Uh, the plight of the Jewish people has been driven out of one land to the next land to the next land to the next land, given the despised job, given the job that no one else wants and everything. You ever ask why Israel? You know, it's like they're in our news enough, right? You know, how come they're always in our news? Why are they everybody after them? Why does everybody hate them so much? Anti-Semitism is on the rise. It is shocking. The, the, the cry after World War II was never again. You know? And yet, now the cry is, it's again. Here it is. You know, they're painting the same symbol. In Germany, painting the same symbols on door, let alone places here and everything else. You know, marking them out. Jews live here. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's shocking how fast we've... Went right back to repeat history. We just launched right back into it. Anti-Semitism. 
Um, that's the hatred of the Jews. And just uh, one day I went down, I'm like, why do they call it that? It goes all the way back to Noah and the Ark. You had it divided up into Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Japheth went to Europe. That's the, most of us are descendants of Japheth in that way. Ham is Africa and the African nations. Shem went uh, east. That's the Oriental. Jews are considered Orientals. I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, the Orientals? I, don't, I wouldn't consider them Oriental, but they're considered Oriental, and that's where the Jews come from, from the Shemites, anti-Semites, anti Shemites, in a sense, how it goes all the way back to them. And so they rejected their God, they rejected their king, so now they are rejected. No sacrifice. The temple's destroyed in 70 AD. It will be standing again uh, at the end times when, they, when the Antichrist goes in. <clears throat> but, so it's there we know in the midpoint of the tribulation. So that's why when there, there's talk, talk of the temple, we're always like, ooh, it must be getting close, you know, and there's a lot of talk of that. Uh, but So we watch for signs of rebuilding. We don't have to have it before the rapture happens, but uh, it tells us the clotus of, of his return, that it'll be on the ground during the tribulation. And so if it's going to be there, you know, so we're at least three and a half years out, you know, or seven years, or, it tells us kind of the closeness. No lambs, no doves offered, no bulls, no grain, no libations. Uh, until the last couple of years. They've not been able to do it on the site. They've killed the animals off-site, but they've been able to do something on the side, on the ground. You know, they can't announce it too much ahead, and they come in, and they've had some celebrations of late, and so we're near even at the door. It seems like it's, it's knocking. These things are starting to come back. Um, they have no place to sacrifice. They have, they're not even allowed access to the top. You know, that's where the Dome of the Rock is, you know, and so they have to be at the Wailing Wall, the foundation of the foundation of the thing. That is the only thing that they can think is a remnant that might be left where they stand as a remnant of the temple. No image, it mentions. That uh, means a pillar. No pillar. Um, and the pillar in the Jewish mindset means an altar for time's sake. I'm going to talk quick. It's Genesis 28. Think when um, uh, it's Jacob, right? He was sleeping, sleeping on the rock and he uses it as a pillow. I've had that one in a hotel a few times. Um, but in the morning after he wrestles with God, he sets it up and he makes a pillar out of it and he pulls, pours uh, oil on it. And so they see that as a memorial stone or an altar, actually, where he's done that. And so Pillar and altar in the Jewish mind means the same thing. That says you have no altar. There's no place for you to offer these things. And so uh, they have no place to worship, to appease God or to pay for their sins. Um, uh, except, ultimately, Jesus has done all this. None of that is needed. If they would just repent and trust in him, all this is, is done and over. But <clears throat> it's a long road ahead for them. The ephod that it mentions that's the priestly garment. It represents the priesthood. They don't have a priesthood. They have no one to stand between them and God. That was the priest's job, the Levites. They were to meet them at the gate, and they would take their sacrifice, and they would sacrifice it, and they'd come back and commune, and then someone would then apply the blood you know, to the altar or at the, at the one time of year, at the, uh, the Day of Atonement, they'd put it at the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and so to appease God, they have no one to do that. We do. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He's done that. You know, he's, he said it's done. He's tore it open. But they don't. They don't have anyone who stands between them. They rejected and killed him. If they turn to him, this could all be over. That's the whole point. They're trying, God's trying to draw them to that point where they turn to him. They have no one system of religion. Uh, they still don't even have that yet. Right now, there's 9% that are considered orthodox. There's 17% that's considered conservative. 37% are considered reform. Uh, and then they have a group of the nuns, uh, which means N-O-N-E, as that they don't have any religion or no branch of religion. 32% and then 4% have all these other little fractions uh, of how they tried to deal with it. And so the most of them are just atheists and agnostic. They don't, they're not even 
they're non-religious Jews. It's either tradition, you know, it's kind of like the Catholic that like says I'm Catholic because my mom and dad are Catholic or whatever that, that, that do those things, or the Christian that comes for Christian and Easter, um, Christian Christmas and Easter. And so a lot of them just fall into that category. They've not had their spiritual eyes awakened yet. That's kind of what I don't wonder if that's not what we're starting to see the start of with the protection that they have. I, I'm looking for the Iron Dome, or now what do they have, the Iron Beam uh, that can shoot and destroy these things. It, it kind of protects them. I'm waiting for that to fail and still them all be stopped and them have to say, how did that happen? You know, maybe that's part of this thing that turns their eyes to awaken, that we have a God who's over us. And we need to acknowledge him and not just be secular Jews. But right now, you know, Jesus said, these things are hidden from your eyes because you didn't see me. I will hide these things from your eyes. He tells us that in Luke. They were driven out of their land. They're being denied their land now, right? That's the whole point. It's like they're saying, these Jews are horrible. They, got this, they have this little bitty sliver. Have you looked? Palestinians are, is a made-up thing. They're all Arabs. And so they were named Palestine or Palestinia uh, by the Romans because they're like, here's a group of people that have always hated the Jews. Let's name them after that so there will be a thorn in their flesh because you know, we hate the Jews. And so they name them that. And so all every nation surrounding them are Arabs. And so plenty of doors will be open, plenty of places for them to go. They just hate that Israel's there at all. Israel gave them the Gaza Strip. They hate that they did. They want it all back. They, they, they love death. Zionism is anyone who thinks that Jews deliver, deserve a homeland, should have a place to go. Shop. You know, that's, that sounds so horrible. That Jewish people who've lived in that land for all these years should have a place to live. That's considered Zionism. God is a Zionist, if you read the scriptures. Uh, you can go to Genesis 15, 18 through 21. That's where he tells them how much he's promised them. They've never occupied the amount of land that God has promised them, from basically the Nile River over to Euphrates, all the way through most of Iraq. Uh, they have all of, all of Jordan would be included in that land, all of Lebanon, all of Syria. Uh, the southern part of Turkey is always what God has promised them. And they're asking for this little slither. And yet the world's saying, no, we hate them for having it. And why are you so oppressive? And why, why do you have to have so much land? And they have barely any. It would have all of them in. But the little that they have, you know, and say is disputed. They're called occupiers. They're saying they don't have a right to exist, that Israel exists. Most of these Palestinian charters and now the Arab charters, as long as Israel um, exists, you know, they are not happy. That's their terms of peace, annihilation of the Jews. I mean, that's outright stated. Um, Isaiah 66 uh, talks about, can this thing happen? Can, can a nation be born in a day? And they were. You know, when, when they signed it over, Israel was born in a day, and it was a shocking thing. Ezekiel 37 is about the valley of dry bones, where God's like, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to take somebody that was dead, and I'm going to bring them back together. There's a shaking, you know, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. They heed the word of the Lord. The knee bones connect to the thigh bone. And all that comes, that all comes from that chapter. And then God says, I'm going to breathe life into them, but then I'm eventually going to breathe spiritual life into them, and it goes into the millennial kingdom. That's Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. And that's the last part of uh, Hosea here. He talks about the teraphim, and they will be without teraphim. That's a household god, which is uh, kind of surprising that it's used in this way. Um, uh, if you think about it, when uh, I think it was Rachel who steals one and then sets on it, you know, that was a teraphim. She took this household deity. But it's basically, they have no closeness with God, is what it's trying to convey. They've had zero communication. They've rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected John the Baptist. And so to their mind, the last prophet that God had sent to speak to them was Malachi. 
And they've been waiting for almost 2,500 years for God just to send a word because they rejected the two that he sent. He sent the, the forerunner, John the Baptist. They rejected him. He pointed out and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They rejected him. And so then God rejects them and sends them to the world. And so just, they've had no communication. They've had no prophet. They've had nothing. All they've got is you know, up to Malachi. And they quit. And they're like, why? That's why if you can get a Jewish person to read the New Testament, they're shocked by how, Jew how Jewish it is. And how, uh, they think it's a book on how to kill Jews because they don't know it's, a, it's been a, a fence that's put up, put up to their eyes. And so they have been on their own in their eyes. God's been with them. They've not been wiped out, though it's been tried to. God has spared them. God shows mercy when no mercy is due because God is trying to draw them to himself. It's through the persecution of the Jews that they have the land that they have because the plight of the Holocaust was so bad. Now he's revealing himself all the more as it continues to draw closer. He's going to reveal himself to them on a grand way when that happens, I'm listening for the trumpet or just before. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I'm watching the news with uh, bated breath like, ooh, what's this? Verse 5, he says, After this, or afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Ah, so where are we in the timing of this? It says right here, well, the last days will be when the Jews get back into the land. Where are the Jews right now? They're in the land. Are we in the last day? I'm just trying to interpret Hosea. He says when they have returned to their land after this, all these years from 70 AD where they wander around and they have no country, at one point uh, there'll be a miracle where they're born in a day and they'll be back in a country, but not spiritually alive yet. And so it's kind of two parts here. Eventually they're going to have to seek the Lord. So they're in the land and he's beginning to draw more back to the land. But they have to seek him. This is what brings the end to the end. And that's not till the end of the seven-year tribulation when you get to Zechariah 12 and they look upon him whom they pierce and they cry out for him and they mourn or finally understand that it was Jesus Christ and he comes and rescues them. And, so, uh, and then when they come back, the rest of this verse is about the millennium when they set up David as their king. That's passages in Isaiah and everything else where he'll put king, or David back on the throne. Is that, uh, Jesus is on the throne too as the son of David. Uh, but they both, uh, both are there, not co-rulers, but just over the region as Jesus rules over the world. And uh, all these things are adding up. And so it kind of tells us where we are in this. And let's, let's leave with looking at Matthew. Look at Matthew 24. Seems like anything that points to the last days, points you back to Matthew 24, but this is where Jesus interprets these things and, and puts them out for us. And he gives us some details here. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 32, he tells us this. I found this on the Says uh, Matthew uh, 24, verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree, which when his branch is yet tender and he putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Now, for time's sake, uh, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel throughout prophecy. And apparently the fig tree is the last tree that blooms uh, in the spring, so they know it's like right at the end of spring, right before summer. So that's why it's kind of this indicator, like, oh, the, the fig tree's blooming, summer's right here. You know, you know, you know it's right there, because it's right at the very end. Verse 33, so likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. It's like when you start putting two and two together, and you start adding th these things up to see how late it is, and you start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, they're back in the land, and wait a minute, these things are happening, and they have the capital, and we have all the different things. They despise the eating the meats, you know, the, the false accusers, uh, whatever, you know, they do all these different things. You begin to add it, and it says, then you know that all these things 
uh, will shortly come to pass. Verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So this generation, so that's when people debate, how long is a generation? When do we start the clock? When, when Israel was born, you know, 75 years ago? You know, uh, is a generation 75 years? Is it 80 years? Is it 100 years? You know, so there's a lot of people debate all these things. Uh, they keep pushing it back. It's not 70 because we're at 75 in now. So it's 75 going on 80. You know, what's God counting? Kind of finding the timing of this. And either way, we're right here at the end. It sure seems like it. Unless God's a liar and I've never found him to be so so far. So I don't think it will be on this either. God says his promises are true. We're to be watching these things. We're to look at the fig tree. Basically, the timepiece of God is Israel. Where are they? In the land. Where are they? In trouble. Under attack. It kind of lets us know the closeness of the hour. And so, and this is all foretold, like reading today's newspaper in Hosea, 785 B.C., you know, telling us this. So God is the one who knows yesterday as clear as it is, uh, as if it was uh, tomorrow as well as it is uh, yesterday. He can see these things, and it proves that he is so... So it's an interesting chapter. You kind of get the whole history of Israel mapped out there, and uh, especially for us, where we sit here and now at this day, day and age. What I miss? No, okay, right. all right. <laughs> I know it's one of his favorite chapters. I thought maybe you have something to add. But, uh, appreciate you being here. The Harvest Party is um, uh, Sunday.